Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now we want to take a look this week at the case of one Paddy Moriarty. Paddy was, and in the unlikely event that he is still alive, still is, a native of Abbeyfield, County Limerick. He immigrated to Australia as a young man and eventually settled in the tiny outback town of Larimer. The town has a population of around a dozen people. On the 16th of December 2017, Paddy had his daily eight tins of beer in the Larimer Hotel and was never heard of again. His home was left completely undisturbed, car parked outside, food on the kitchen table, his bed made. He simply disappeared. Also gone was his dog, Kelly. Now think about it, short of Paddy and his dog simply walking off into the great outback and disappearing, and very few people believe that to be the case, it's difficult to fathom what could have happened to him. Pretty soon the police, and, and the nearest police station is I think nearly 100 kilometres away, they came to the conclusion that he must have been murdered. Throwing the fact that the dynamic among the tiny population of Larima was combustible at times with some of the people not getting on at all with others, and that would include Paddy and some of the locals as well. And you can imagine that the finger of suspicion began pointing at certain individuals. The circumstances of Paddy Moriarty's disappearance and the circumstance of the community where he lived led two Australian journalists, Kylie Stevenson and Caroline Graham, to put together a fascinating podcast, Lost in Larima. And Kylie joins me now. Kylie, you're very welcome and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Kylie, just to set the scene for listeners who are totally new to this story, who was Paddy Moriarty and what do we know about him? So Paddy was an Irishman. He was born in Abbeyfield, as you mentioned, in Limerick. And he came to Australia when he was around 19 years old. He came over on a boat, immigrated to Australia, um, and came straight to the Northern Territory. And once he arrived here, he went to work on a cattle station uh, in the Northern Territory, uh, where he was working as a ringer, I believe. And he spent the rest of his life here in the Northern Territory, When he disappeared, he was 70 years old. Uh, He'd been living in Larimer for a bit over 10 years, I think. And yeah, it's it's just been a mystery that's kind of gripped not just Australia, but um, a lot of places overseas, actually, have been very interested in his story. And when you say, I think you described it as a a ringer on a cattle station, um, just in terms of when you, I suppose some people, it's difficult sometimes when (laughs) geographically you're you're from a place as small as Ireland to imagine, but these cattle stations that you're talking about and that, they're really effectively out in the middle of nowhere and and it's, it's a tough life, I'd imagine. 
Yeah, back then especially. Um, I think when Paddy arrived, the people who he, he'd arranged the work ahead of time, so they picked him up from the boat in Darwin, which is uh, on our north coast. Darwin is the capital of the Northern Territory. And it took them a couple of days, I think, um, to drive down to the station he was working on, Brunette Downs. It's an enormous station. Back then it was probably... Uh, probably the biggest in Australia, if not one of. Um, it's still very much up there uh, in terms of the size of it and the amount of cattle that it runs on the station. And, yeah, it really is very far away from from anything really and it's a really tough life. You know, you're out mustering cattle a lot of the time so you're living in camps rather than at the homestead. Uh, and, yeah, that's that's the kind of work that Paddy was doing. And as you say, at some stage towards the latter part of his life, he decided to settle in uh, Larimer. Yes, that's right. And we know he still has some relatives in this country. I think one actually is a a Limerick County Councillor, Francis Foley. I think he's a councillor for Fianna Fáil. He's he's a cousin of his and there are a few others. And as you say, we know he was born, I think, in, in Croome County Hospital near Abbey Field in 1947. His mother, Teresa a native of Abbeyfield, and she died in 1995. And Kylie, you actually met Paddy Moriarty prior to prior to him disappearing. I did. Uh, I'll just quickly correct you there. His mother was Mary Teresa Moriarty, I believe. Right. Um, and yeah, as far as his um, relatives there go, none of them had actually met Paddy, but they do remember his mother. So it, his his early life in Ireland is still quite a mystery to us. We're still researching and sort of getting in touch with people who we think might have known him, but um, it's, it's a part of his life we're really interested to find out about and how he sort of came to be in the Northern Territory is a story that we have little snippets of, but we don't have the full picture. Um, and, yeah, I had met Paddy, as you said. Uh, I... <laughs> it's a bit of a strange circumstance, but the the NT Writers Centre started running a writers retreat out at Larimar because there was an author who used to live up here named Andrew McMillan. He used to go down to Larimar to write. He just found it a place of, I guess, inspiration and isolation, and he used to go there to write his books. And when he passed away, he left money to the Writers Centre to send a writer down each year. And I was the first writer to go down there. Uh, with this program. And um, yeah, Paddy was obviously just there. He w- he was helping out at the pub. That was part of his life in retirement. He would turn up at the pub every morning at about nine o'clock and just help with, you know, raking the leaves and collecting firewood in the winter and cleaning out the toilet block, things like that. Uh, he did that for just, I think his payment was a case of beer. And so I would kind of wander out into the pub for a drink or something in the middle of the day, have a bit of a break, have some lunch, and Paddy was usually there. So, yeah, I had a bit of a, a chat to him. You know, obviously in hindsight I really wish I'd, you know, written down more of the things he told me and, and paid a bit more close attention. But I did write down a few things um, because, you know, Larimer is just this extraordinary town and I was immediately sort of, I guess, captured by the place. I was there writing a novel and I knew straight away I needed to write something about this town that was kind of on the edge of extinction and and all these interesting people who'd ended up there. And, yeah, Paddy was one of those people. And as you say, Larimer, an interesting place, Kylie. Um, and I, I think about it, do- certainly we're going back two years now and I think things have even changed since then, but there was about a dozen residents. But if we take it back uh, so the end of the war, the, the Second World War, it, it, it was relatively thriving at the time, wasn't it? And and there was, um, it, it seemed at one stage it might, 
make a, a, a notable place in terms of, of a proposed uh, cross-country rail track, but that didn't materialise in the end. Yeah, so it kind of popped up as part of the um, – there was a, a hope to build a rail from one end of the country to the other. And then in the 1930s when the Depression hit, uh, I think some some bean counters just said, that's it, stop wherever you are, and that happened to be about 7K south of Larimer uh, in a town called Burdham. So that ended up being the railhead and that's how it sort of became a town. And then during the war um, – you know, Darwin was being bombed. Darwin was actually bombed more times than Pearl Harbour. Uh, so people needed to evacuate and get further south. So they were kind of, I think, evaluating how far people needed to go so that they would be safe, so that, um, you know, the Japanese bombers wouldn't reach them. And Larimer was kind of that point. And the fact that it was a railhead obviously helped. So at that point, between Larimer and... Um, Burdham, that town that's 8K south and then a little airstrip north of there called Gorry, there was about 5,000 people living out there in the bush and there wasn't much there, but um, they did kind of build up, you know, quite a a little town, I guess. They had, you know, there was a, a cinema, there were tennis courts, there were, you know, buildings, there's still remnants of those buildings there. But then as soon as the war finished, that all packed up everyone left, then it was still the railhead that limped on till the 70s, I think. Uh, and then and then when that kind of packed up shop, that was kind of the end of the town. And since then, the population has really probably never exceeded, I don't know, 20. Yeah. And as you said, in, in terms of uh, uh, even as you're, with your novelist's eye, I mean, it really is, it strikes me anyway, from what I've, I've read about it, something straight out of the imagination of the outback in Australia, literally a tiny place in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, it is on the highway, so it is very accessible, but it's the kind of place that you probably would just continue driving through because it no longer has a petrol station. Uh, there used to be a petrol station and a couple of roadhouses there and a caravan park, but that all was destroyed in a fire in 2006. So really all that's left there now is the pub, which is known as the Pink Panther. It's painted pink, um, which is a bit of a novelty. It really is probably one of the last true you know, outback pubs in Australia. Um, so people do stop in there and have a beer, but people generally don't stick around. It's the kind of place you kind of, you know, you follow the the speed limit signs, you slow down to 60 and then you just keep going. Right. And as you say, even though there's as, as and I think as low as 12 at one stage, residents and rarely more than 20, but even with, but within that, there's some very unusual dynamics. First of all, you, you, you had some strange characters, well, unusual characters, one had a fondness for exotic animals. Among other things, he kept a few crocodiles. <laughs> yeah, so his name was Barry Sharp. He was the publican there for, oh, probably 15 years or so. He uh, sort of started, I guess, collecting a bit of wildlife when he took over the pub and, and it expanded to the point where he had a zoo. There was about 500 birds out there and he had... An enormous crocodile is about three and a half metres, I think, named Sneaky Sam. There's another crocodile with no eyes um, and a third crocodile too, actually. Uh, and then, yeah, he had squirrel gliders, a couple of emus, uh, some wallabies, heaps of snakes. Um, yeah, so he, he had accumulated this stuff and, and it eventually turned it into a zoo. So it was a bit of an attraction for people who were stopping in at the pub. I, this might be a silly question, but from from the point of view of someone who's not au fait with crocs, were they house trained? <laughs> there was no chance they were going to attack you and eat you. 
They were uh, very much in uh, enclosures that they could not get out of because, you know, Sam, three and a half metres, he would definitely have have eaten you if he'd had the opportunity. Okay. And as I say, it seems that a lot of people, and this is well documented, fascinatingly, actually, in the podcast, a lot of people didn't get on with each other. And one of the people whom Paddy Moriarty didn't get on with was a local woman, was it Fran Hodgetts, who used to run the tea house in the town. Yes, Fran still owns the tea house. It's still running. Her grandson's there running it at the moment. Uh, So, yeah, they were directly across the road from each other, Fran and Paddy. And no one can really pinpoint exactly what kicked things off between them, but they did not get along. I think it's it's pretty fair to say that they were not friendly at all. Um, and, you know, in a person like Patty who kind of had a bit of a reputation as being a bit of a stirrer, um, you know, people like to use the word larrikin, but some of the stuff he did kind of pushed the boundaries a little bit. You know, um, I think the last time Fran saw Patty, um, she looked out her her bedroom window and she could see him coming across the highway dragging something and she realised it was a dead kangaroo. It, it had been killed on the road and he was dragging it over and he threw it into her yard. And he'd, he'd done that a few times. So, you know, it, it wasn't your normal uh, feud. It was a bit, a bit of an outback twist on a feud, I suppose. And it actually, it actually ended up in court at one stage in Catron, the, the, the local, well, local, I don't know how many hundred kilometres away, big town. Well, I've, I've heard of Catron, the, the, the town, but they ended up in court there. Paddy was accused of poisoning her palm trees, stealing her umbrella, abusing her customers, destroying her furniture and cutting the cord on her security cameras. Yeah, that's right. So Fran, I think, tried to take out a uh, an order against him that he would have to stay away from her because she uh, said all this this stuff was happening and that Patty was responsible. Um, and it did go to court, but they found that there was no evidence to say that it was Patty doing these things. So um, that was it was settled that way. Yeah, and, I, and I, it is fair to say, I think also that, that you mentioned that in terms of the police being called out, Fran had rose with other people, including frequently her ex-husband. So it wasn't just an issue between herself and Paddy. One other individual that popped up, Kylie, was a, a man who hadn't been in town very long, who'd had a bit of a falling out with Paddy as well. Is that Richard that you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah, so it's not really clear if they did have a falling out or not. Certainly some people believed that they did. Uh, That was brought up at the inquest. There has been an inquest into Paddy's disappearance, but there's been no findings from that as yet. Um, But that was kind of brought forward. It was about six months after he disappeared because not only is Larimer a town of 12 people, it's a town of 12 quite older people. So most people there are over the age of 70, some are over 80. Uh, So it felt like uh, I think the police felt it was important to get that evidence on the record while there was that opportunity to do it. Um, And Richard was uh, the barman. He was working for Barry at the Larimer Hotel and certainly he and Paddy were friendly, um, but there were people who, who claimed that there was some kind of issue there. Certainly in the inquest, Richard claimed that wasn't the case at all, that Paddy was a mate. And when we interviewed him, he was, you know, he was seemed genuinely concerned about what had happened and, and troubled by it. Um, but, yeah, there was some suggestion by other people that perhaps their relationship was a bit rocky. Okay, so we come to, uh, I think it's the 16th of December 2017, a Saturday. Um, Paddy had his daily eight cans of beer, uh, in the Larimer Hotel 
uh, he went out and got on his quad bike with his dog, Kelly. And um, his normal routine, his, his completely habitual routine, was to show up on Sunday at the hotel for midday for what they described as church, but was, in fact, to watch a local rural affairs programme. And on that Sunday, there was a no-show from Paddy. Yeah, that's right. So every Sunday, Barry and Paddy would meet in the bar and they'd watch Landline together. Uh, it's just, yeah, as you said, a rural current affairs programme and they referred to it as church. Um, obviously, Paddy, you know, growing up in Ireland, often spent his Sundays at church when he was younger. Um, And when he didn't turn up, I think Barry sort of thought, oh, well, you know, it's not unusual for him to not turn up occasionally. Maybe he'd, you know, decided to have a sleep in or maybe he'd decided to go and visit someone. That kind of thing happened occasionally. So he sort of left it for that day. And then the following day when he didn't turn up, he thought, "Mm, no, there's, there's something a bit strange about this. So he went over to check on him and, and found no sign of Paddy anywhere. And everything was left. I mean, there was, for example, there was no sign of a struggle. There was no sign, I think, that Paddy had slept in his bed that night, or at least the bed was made. There was food. There looked ready to be eaten. I think he might have got a, a cooked chicken from somebody earlier on the Saturday, and that looked as if it was there ready to be taken for his dinner or whatever. And... um his, his vehicle, his car was outside, so everything looked perfectly normal from that point of view. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, food on the table. Um, one thing that a lot of people pointed to, uh, other friends of his who turned up and had a look around the house as well just to make sure that he hadn't, you know, fallen off the bed and rolled under it or something like that. They just went in to check and, and one thing they all noticed was that his good hat was there and, you know, Paddy... When he went missing and the police released a photo of him, he he was bald and I was surprised by that because I realised I'd never seen him without a hat on it and a lot of people hadn't. A lot of people who had been friends with him for many years had never seen him without a hat um, and he had a particularly, you know, a favourite hat that was his good hat and if he was going somewhere special with someone, that's, that's the hat he would have grabbed and that was still there as well. Um, and the fact that his dog Kelly was also gone, uh, his quad bike and car were parked out the, out the back of his house where they were always parked um, I think the lights were on, the fan was on. Yeah, it really just looked as if he'd gone out for a walk. And I suppose the thing, again, that perhaps we wouldn't appreciate enough um, at this side of the world is that uh, you're talking about December and your summer down there, obviously, is the opposite to ours. So you're at the height of the summer, the heat, and you're in the outback where it is at its hottest. And, for example, if he had strayed out, if he had fallen down or anything, surviving for long in that kind of heat would be very difficult, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah, impossible. I mean, you hear every now and then you hear a sort of extraordinary story of someone surviving in the outback, you know, but because everyone knew what Paddy's routine was, that he would, you know, get up in the morning, he would walk his dog along a particular track at the back of his house and back and then he'd go over to the pub, There was re- they were really the only places he could possibly be was along those tracks if he'd you know, fallen down, had a heart attack, been bitten by a snake, which were possibilities that were all obviously, you know, initially what police thought had happened. Um, but, yeah, I mean, at that time of year when those guys were out there searching, it was I think it was 48 degrees or something and, you know, it's just so humid and hot and um, exposed. You know, there's not a lot of there's a lot of shrubbery around but not a lot of, you know, great tall trees. So your chances of, 
of surviving a, a pretty slim if if something like that had happened if you'd you know broken your leg or had a heart attack or been bitten by a snake you, you just couldn't survive long in that climate and similarly you know if, if, if you to speculate for example supposing for whatever reason he wandered off into the outback around the town or whatever and we do know that there are a lot of various wild animals or whatever and in, in the very unfortunate event that he, he fell or he lost consciousness or, or irrespective of any of that um, and what, what might have been done to his body but irrespective of any of that as I understand it the police would have been confident that there would have been some sign of him be it his clothes or something that would signify that he, he, he had been his body had been in a particular place and there was nothing of that nature whatsoever found. Yeah, nothing at all. I mean, there was a few days between Paddy going missing and Barry reporting it to police. So Barry did call the police, I think it was on the Tuesday, um, and he couldn't get through to the local cop shop. It's one of those situations where you're ringing, you know, a hotline that goes through to a main, you know, head office or whatever. And so he left a message. No one got back to him. So it was another 24 hours. So I think it was about five days until... um, you know, police turned up and realised we need to be out here searching. And it was a really extensive search. They had helicopters involved. They had police on foot, on motorbikes, on quad bikes. Um, You know, it it was pretty thorough. But in saying that, that landscape is really a difficult landscape and there have been cases up here where, you know, someone's gone missing, no one's found the remains, or there are several cases where remains have never been found and then there are cases where they've been found you know, a few years later, right where people were looking. Um, because there were those five days, you do have that risk of wild animals. There's pigs, dingoes, um, the birds, that kind of thing out there that that could probably, you know, pick apart a body um, and, and really kind of remove not all evidence but, you know, make it a lot less obvious, I guess, to find. But one way or the other, the police came to suspect that he had been murdered. Yeah, that's correct. And I think that probably Kelly was the thing that really made that a realistic possibility for them. Um, you know, if it, if it was one of those possibilities we've just spoken about, a medical episode of some sort, a fall, um, what happened to the dog? You know, a dog would come back to town looking for water or looking for food. There's nothing else out there. Um, they would have found evidence of of one or the other, you know, uh, so, yeah, I think that's kind of the thing that really pushed it in that direction. In your investigations, Kylie, you, you actually went looking um, to see if the dog could have shown up anywhere. You, you had a few leads in terms of where, where there was possibilities and then ultimately when it checked out, so th- there has been no sighting as such of, of, of Kelly the dog either. No, yeah, we had um, we had some researchers working with us uh, who rang around every shelter that, you know, possible like we we rang so many places to see if there was a dog that matched Kelly's description and there just there just wasn't um there hadn't been you know in that entire time between Patty disappearing and us calling so I mean it's still it is a possibility the dog ran away and and somebody's picked it up thinking it was a stray and just not realized that this is the same dog at the center of this investigation but um I mean like most of the possibilities in this case Everything seems pretty impossible. You know, everything seems absurd. Yeah, so if we come to the scenario, the police suspect a murder 
Um, is it therefore inevitable that their main suspects are, are persons of interest, to put it that way, are inevitably the dozen or so residents of Larimer? Those people were certainly interviewed very early on, not just uh, as suspects or people of interest, I suppose, but also for their knowledge of that landscape uh, and knowledge of Paddy and, and his past. Um, certainly all those people were looked into, but when you look a bit further into Paddy's past, you find that there are actually a few situations that he's found himself in where um, he's gotten on the wrong side of people. So his previous, the town he lived in before he came to Larimer was a place called Daily Waters, uh, about 100k south of Larimer. And when he lived there, he had uh, an ongoing feud with a neighbour in that town as well. Uh, everyone knew that when truckies passed through Larimer, if they pulled up on his side of the road and, you know, in his property, he would go out and confront them about that. So there were a lot more possibilities than just in town, even though it's tempting um, to kind of think this is a confined situation and there's only 11 other people you need to look at. It's actually not really the case at all. And so I presume the police investigations included um, people from his past in that respect. Yeah, I know that a lot of those people have received calls from the police and have um, have spoken to them about it, yeah. And and an inquest was opened but not completed on the basis that um, the police investigation remains open, I presume. That's right, yeah. Um, so the, the, that was almost two years ago now that inquest was held and it was adjourned. So I guess that means that... Um, you know, if more evidence is found by police, they could call back witnesses or they could call new witnesses. Um, yeah, and there's just there hasn't been any indication of when those uh, findings might be released. And I suppose you can imagine a very small town like that, um, as I say, again, about a dozen people, one of them disappears, presumed murdered. Uh, I'd imagine that can have a big impact on the whole dynamic of the town, particularly as you say that most of the residents are over 70. Yeah, it's funny because I guess from the outside looking in, you would think that that would make people, you know, a bit apprehensive or a bit frightened about the place they live, but it didn't necessarily do that. Those people have all lived there for many years and and there's just this kind of um, attitude in the outback of, I don't know, just getting on with things, I think. Um I guess it's changed the dynamic in terms of they've become not unwillingly necessarily, but you know, it wasn't their decision to become the people at the center of this mystery. So there's often documentary makers, there's obviously me, I'm one of these people who turns up there, you know, knocking on their door and, and asking questions and having conversations with them. So I think the attention is probably something that, you know, none of them are terribly keen on in terms of, you know, you move to a place like that because you like privacy, you like your own space, and um, and they've suddenly found themselves in the middle of this big mystery. Would it be fair to say nobody believes that he's still alive? I wouldn't say nobody. There's always going to be people who do believe that he has run off, uh, but I just... What's your hunch? I don't think that's the case. I, I don't think he can be alive. I think that given the state of his house and how orderly everything was, how untouched everything was, it would take so much planning to plan a disappearance like that. And I just, I'm not sure that 
that many people could pull that off, not for this long. Um, and and not such a high profile case, you know. People, his faces on posters all over the Northern Territory. I'm not sure that he could go unrecognised for that long. And as far as the police are concerned, the case is still open. Yes, that's right. And I was also fascinated. You mentioned in the documentary, uh, Kylie, is it thirty eight thousand people a year go missing in Australia. Yeah, it's a lot of people and, um, you know, it sounds suspicious at first when you start looking at how many of those disappearances occur on the Stuart Highway, but when you think about it a bit more logically, you know, it is a main road, it runs through the middle of the Northern Territory and there are communities kind of branching off that, but anyone coming into anywhere ends up on that road. It's it's not... Um, yeah, I I don't think that there's there has been suggestions that there you know was a serial killer on that road or something like that, but I think that um, yeah, there's there's nothing that links any of those uh, missing persons cases with each other. And then just finally we come to Larimer and the, the future for the town itself. As I understand it, the hotel owner you mentioned, Barry Sharp, he became ill and he left and. Did he die since? And and Fran Hodgetts, she also became ill and she's left town? Yeah, that's correct. Barry passed away uh, just over a year ago. Um, he had cancer. He'd sold the pub and uh, was still living in Larimer uh, when he when he died. Um, and Fran Hodgetts said that in, in the inquest she mentioned that she'd been diagnosed with breast cancer. Uh, so she had gone down to Melbourne, I think, for treatment. And her grandson actually moved up to Larimer and he's been uh, kept the tea house up and running. He, he actually makes a great scone, I'll tell you that. Um, he, Yeah, so the, the town has changed a little bit. You've got the new pub owner there. Um, you've got new people working in the pub. Um, and, yeah, the rest of the town is, is still there and, yeah, kicking on. And is it kicking on to the extent, is it the kind of place in your experience that you could see will actually carry on or is it inevitable that it'll effectively shut down someday soon? I think when I first went there, I thought, you know, this this is a place that is is doomed. It's going to die because all its residents are older and, you know, there's not much incentive for anyone else to move there, anyone new. But actually what's happened in the last couple of years is they're talking about releasing some land around that area for farming um, they've done uh, some studies and, and found that it's quite good land to grow things like mangoes and watermelons, so there's potential for that to go ahead. Um, there's also been a lot of talk in the Northern Territory about fracking, and if that were to go ahead, it's it's still kind of um, being discussed in our government here, but um, if that were to go ahead, uh, Larimer would kind of find itself in the middle of where all that drilling would take place so you know there's potential for it to turn to turn into a workers camp or or something like that so i think there are possibilities for Larimer, um but they're they're not easy ones and um i guess only time will tell if people take them up yeah it's fascinating and as you say the possibility of reversing um long-term decline in that but it is a fascinating story and the podcast i have to say is extremely well done lost in Larimer. Kylie, and thank you for that. Before I let you go, uh, the I suppose the inevitable question, the one thing that bonds us all wherever we are in the world at the moment is the virus. How's Australia dealing with it and how's the vaccine rollout there? Um, I, the vaccine rollout uh, started a few weeks ago and it seems to be, um, I guess, some confusing information about who is eligible 
in those first rounds of, of the vaccination who's encouraged to get it. Um, but, I mean, really, compared to, to overseas, Australia's done pretty well. I mean, I'm pretty – I feel pretty outside of it. In Northern Territory, we've been particularly lucky. We had, I think, only a dozen or so cases in the very beginning and then um, – and the only cases we've had since have been in quarantine because we're uh, we currently have a, a camp here where um, we're taking international travellers in for their quarantine for the two weeks. Um, so everyone who's been diagnosed any time recently has has been in that facility and and it's not spread. So we've had no community spread at all in the Northern Territory, which we're so fortunate for because we have such a large Indigenous population up here, and we have these communities and um, you know that are sort of quite remote and a lot of people who live in those communities have health difficulties that would make them very susceptible to the virus. So we've been incredibly lucky. Would you put some of that down, Kylie, to the to the climate? Yeah, I have heard that mentioned. I'm not sure. I think um I just I just honestly think it's luck. <laughs> like I think it could have really gone the other yeah. way. And if if the virus had ended up here, it could have wiped out just whole communities of people. And I just think Oh, thank God we were, you know, fortunate enough to escape that. Yeah, could do a bit of that luck here. But um, listen, Kylie Stevenson, yeah. thank you very much for joining us. Lost in Larima is the podcast, folks. It's a podcast series. It's fascinating. And I think anybody will have, will really get a lot from it, particularly, as I say, with the interest that the man at the centre of it is Limerick man, Paddy Moriarty. And I would have to say, I highly recommend it. That's it for today, folks. I want to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you for listening. We'll see you soon and mind yourself.